66 books, 40 authors, 3 languages, written over some 1,500 years, all telling one story. God's singular story, the drama of gracious redemption. And this year, 52 weeks, we're taking our time to go all the way through that story. And before we kind of unpack where we are right now, I want to introduce something to you that I am actually really excited about. Um, along with going through the Bible in a year, um, from a preaching standpoint, one of my big hopes was that we would be able to go through the Bible in a year as a church family, reading the Bible in total together as a church. So in communities, in homes, together as one family, reading the entire Bible. Um, so to help you out with that, I'm not going to create a plan for you to accomplish that. Uh, wiser and better men have done that in my stead. Uh, and one particular resource in general, it's called the Reader's Guide for the Bible. Uh, at the Grace Dinners a few months ago, if you came to those, I kind of hinted at this resource. But here I want to introduce it to you. And we have some in the back this morning that are available for sale. Uh, this was written by a man named George Guthrie, and it's part of an entire comprehensive kind of program that he's put together to help uh, churches read through the Bible chronologically, following the story of redemption together as a church family. Takes you through the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, not skipping a beat. And this book, this Reader's Guide to the Bible, is broken down into daily readings, and each daily reading gives you the text to read, and then it gives you a little bit of annotation. It kind of explains to you what it is you're about to read and where it fits in the context. And as the week adds up through the seven days, at the end, there's a whole series of questions for you to be able to use together as a community. They're community application questions. And so I want to encourage all of you, community leaders, individuals, families, I want to encourage you to get a copy of this. We've got a number of them for sale in the back. You can get them on Amazon. They'll ship on Prime, too, if you have Prime. Um, if not, if like $1.50 more, that we can get them for, for cost. So Amazon is a fantastic place to get them. But grab one of these. It will guide you through reading the Bible chronologically together as a family, as a community, as a church family. It will give you a description of what you read and application questions to apply to your heart. And probably the, that's probably the thing I've been most excited about this series was the idea that we together as a church can read the entire Bible. Not just me preaching through the highlights of the story, but for us to actually read it so that we know at the end of the year, at least in this time period, I know we've all read the entire Bible. I mean, the reality of it is less than 10% of followers of Christ, when they die, can actually say they've actually read the entire Bible through, which is really an unfortunate statistic. So we're thinking our best effort this year to remedy that, at least here in this place, and that's reading it through together with this. So what we'll try to do, and I hope we can accomplish it, um, I haven't really worked this out Ryan yet, but along with you guys using this guide, we'll try to get the readings out maybe in the bulletin or on the site at least. So if you don't get the guide, you can at least get the readings and read them along with the church family. We can't put the questions and the narration up there for you because it's copywritten. Uh, the reading plan, though, we can actually put up there for you. But I would encourage you. I think we're selling it at $10 after we pay for them. Uh, we've got them in the back. Grab one on your way out. Community leaders, grab one for your community. Use the application questions in community. And then let's read the entire Bible together as a church family this year. Let's get all the way through it and understand God's story in total. So I am tremendously excited about that. Um, and I hope to, let's just say this. I haven't decided to say Let's say we'll start it next week. Give you this week to get the book. Next week we'll start it. 
And for those of you who are really, really like anal on schedules, and you're like, how are we going to get through this in 52 weeks anyway? And now we're already in Genesis 12, and we're going to keep going forward. How are we ever going to get through this? Just to give you a clue, when you read through the Bible in an entire year, and you do daily readings to get through it in an entire year, in the first week of your reading the Bible, you'll already catch up to where we are today. You will read Genesis 1 through 11 just in the first week of reading the Bible. So you're not behind. And so when we wait another week to start this in the church family, within your second week of reading the Bible, you'll already be ahead of where we will be preaching. So you're fine. We're not behind. We kind of waited on purpose to get started so we can introduce this to you so that we can kind of be reading along the same path. And throughout the year, there will be times when your reading is ahead of us, and there will be times when we're preaching is ahead of you. But it all works together, telling the story. So grab one of these, use it, uh, use it in your communities, let it guide your discussions. Uh, great resource commended to you highly. So that's my announcement. Any other announcements this morning? No, that's my announcement. So as we get into Genesis chapter 12, Look at my time. Oh, my goodness. Uh, let's briefly look back at the story that we've seen so far that will help us make the most sense out of what we're going to read this morning. Now, if you remember, if you were here when we started, where we said we're going to break this story up into five acts, five dramatic acts that narrate the story of redemption. In each act, there are multiple scenes, but there are five acts. And in the first act, we saw uh, the king, God as king, establishing his kingdom in creation. We saw the power of God, the glory of God, I mean the goodness of God, and, and the greatness of God, and the graciousness of God on display in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. I mean, who can do what God can do? I mean, who can rival Him? And what aspect of creation merited Him actually thinking about it and then creating it? All an act of His grace and of His greatness and of His glory and power. And we saw the king establishing his kingdom in, in Act 1, in Genesis 1 and 2. But then we get into Act 2, we find rebellion in God's kingdom. And just one short chapter later, in Genesis chapter 3, we see the story begin to go awry. We see the story begin to become unraveled. We see that man who God created in his image and likeness for his glory out of nothing but sheer grace chooses to rebel against God's good word. Chooses to disbelieve things that are true about God. Chooses to disbelieve that God truly is good. That God truly is glorious. That God truly is gracious. That God truly is the greatest thing that man can set his affections on. They exchange the truth of God for a lie about him. He's holding back something from us. He's really not that good. Gracious. Gracious, he didn't give us everything that he possibly could have. Glorious. What's he really going to do about this if we choose to disobey him anyway? And see, they doubted the truth about God, and they exchanged the truth about who he was for a lie. And in that exchange, and in that rebellion, sin entered God's original normal. Distrust, disobedience, and disregard for God's word. But it's that decision that Adam and Eve made in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 brought discord brokenness and radical divisiveness into God's creation. And this decision, this exchange of the truth of God for a lie, not only brought discord and disharmony into God's creation, we see it give rise just a short chapter later even to murder in itself. And we see the effects and the pervasiveness of sin begin to spread through God's creation. 
And we read, and Pastor Brad O'Brien last week kind of brought us through from that story, from Genesis chapter 3 onwards through chapter 10. We see that pervasiveness of sin begin to reach a crescendo where God declares that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was on evil continually. We see the impact of Adam and Eve's exchange of the truth of God for a lie, their disregard for God's good word, their rebellion against their king. We begin to see the effects take place on earth, in creation, in the relationships between mankind, in between man and the created world, and in the relationships between man and God. Yet, even in the midst of that sin, in the midst of that devastation, in the middle of those consequences that are wreaking havoc on God's creation, we also learn from the very beginning that even in God's judgment and even in the pervasiveness of sin, all of it is still laced with traces and elements of God's grace. Even in the garden, we learn that the serpent who had tempted Adam and Eve to disbelieve God, to exchange the truth of God for a lie, we even learn by God's grace that one day the head of that serpent will be crushed. We saw God, even in the midst of Adam and Eve's treason and rebellion, clothe them, to cover them, to do for them what they tried to do for themselves but couldn't accomplish. We saw God protect their son, Cain. We saw God, in the midst of the story of Noah, protect Noah and his family. We saw God's grace laced in the middle of this outbreak of sin, the consequences of sin. And what we learned through the first ten chapters is that God's creation is moving forward. But it's moving forward with a limp. It's limping under the crushing weight of human sin. And after the flood, God graciously, we learned last week, renews his promise to creation and to humanity. And he once again told Noah and his family to set himself out upon the earth and to multiply and to fill the earth, just as he had told Adam and Eve. But by Genesis 11, we hit another snag. Genesis 11, we read the story of mankind becoming intoxicated, becoming drunk in a sense on his own capacities and on his own abilities and fully believing that he's capable of creating his own version of heaven on earth. I wish we had time this morning we could talk about how you and I are always trying to do this. In life, in religion, work harder, work faster, be smarter, take charge, make it happen. Genesis chapter 11 is nothing more than the story of the desire for human progress. But as we learned last week in Genesis chapter 11, the story of human progress is 100% guaranteed to always have a bad ending. No matter how many centuries pass by, no matter how many variations we come up with of what it means for mankind to work harder, be smarter, work more efficiently, achieve more, take charge, make things happen, manifest their own destiny here on this earth, I promise you, 100% of the time, our efforts at human progress will always end up with a bad thing. So a good reminder to remember this week and next week. What man needs, what is most important for him in this situation, doesn't come in riding either the elephant or the donkey. Our visions of human progress and manifest destiny are 100% destined to fail. What man needs is not progress. That's what we learned last week. What man really needs is redemption. Mankind, creation, all the creator needs redemption, not human progress. 
the result of those efforts in Genesis chapter 11 was chaotic divisiveness. And as we wrapped up the story last week, as we wrapped up that second act where rebellion had entered the kingdom and the pervasiveness of that rebellion began to take root and the fruit of that rebellion began to be seen, we saw that mankind had amassed a catalog, a catalog of sin. From anger and jealousy and envy and strife to murder, corruption, sexual disorder, arrogance, violence. Instead of trusting in God's greatness, Instead of trusting God for being who He is is great, mankind battled one another for control of their life and their future. And instead of trusting God's glory, mankind, mankind now feared God and feared one another. I mean, instead of trusting God's goodness, instead of trusting God to be the most satisfying thing in their life, they now chase satisfaction by every single dark rabbit hole that they can find. And instead of trusting in God's graciousness, what in the world do you have that commends you to God in any way, shape, form, or fashion. Everything that you have, the air you breathe, is nothing but a gift from Him. Mankind is now bent on proving themselves and proving their worth to one another and ultimately to God Himself. God's original normal has been shattered. And so what can God do next? What's left for God to do now? Everything has unraveled. All things are beginning to come undone. The thoughts of mankind and the intentions of their heart are on nothing but evil continually. So what's God going to do? That brings us to Act 3. Now Act 3, as we move into the third act of the story, is going to have many scenes in it and it's going to take us through the entire Old Testament. So the rest of the Old Testament is all going to fall under this third act where the king now calls out the people. And the king recognizes that what mankind needs isn't their own ability to progress forward. What they need is redemption. And we're going to see God initiate his plan of redemption in this third act. And it's going to take us through the entire Old Testament. But for the next two weeks, this week and next week, we're going to get through the entire book of Genesis. And what we're going to see is the story that has encompassed all of creation and all of humanity through the first 11 chapters of Genesis is now going to zero in to four men. Four men. Four men called the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. What does God do next? He does something that only God could have come up with. God chooses an elderly, barren couple from Babel of all places. To be the leaders. To be the launching point of his plan of cosmic redemption. Again, be human for just a second. Can you imagine the angel's response to this? I mean, they've looked on as the serpent's temptation and the venom that was infected into all of mankind has reached epic proportions. They've watched God deal graciously with humanity and creation all the way along the way. What is God going to do next? The angels aren't omniscient. They're watching on to figure out what God's going to do. Can you imagine what their response was? When God decided to initiate his plan of redemption through a barren, elderly couple from Babel, the deep breaths, the anxious coughing, what in the world is God going to do? The call of Abraham that we see in Genesis chapter 12 is the beginning of God's answer to the evil of human hearts and its impact on creation. 
what we'll see here in Genesis chapter 12 through the life of Abraham is the initiation of God's gracious plan of redemption. A plan that will take the rest of the scriptures to unfold. We see it initiated here. Hey, listen to this. Lawrence Richards, he said this. He said that Abraham stands as the greatest figure to be found in the ancient world. Three religions, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, revere him as the father of their faiths. But what makes Abraham important to us is not the reverence in which he's held. It's not even the belief that the National Geographic said that Abraham created and conceived of the great single idea of one almighty God. Abraham's importance is not even found in the fact that he is today a prime model of saving faith. No, the importance of Abraham in Genesis is that through Abraham, God reveals his purpose and his goal for the universe. In his promises to Abraham, God reveals that in the midst of all human wickedness, he actually has a plan. That's what we're going to see in the beginning of this story in Genesis chapter 12. So if you've got it open, let me open it with you. Let's just read a little bit. And then I want to make a few comments this morning about this plan. We don't have much time to go this morning, so I'm going to be brief and less story-oriented. So you have to bear with me. Genesis chapter 12. Let's read together, and then I want to make some points. Now the Lord God said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the thing who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old, and he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all of their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. They set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country in the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel in the west and Ai in the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord, and he called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. I'm going to make as many observations about God's grace and his redemptive plan as I can in the next 20 minutes. So if you have a pen, you can write them down. We're going to go fast. I'm going to see how far I can get. I'm not sure how far we'll go. Here's the first one. God's redemptive work, all of God's redemptive work is all of grace. All of God's redemptive work is all of grace. See it in verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go to your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Who took the initiative there? Whose initiative was this in this plan? It's God's. It's all on God. God calls Abram. Abram isn't looking for the truth about God. Abram isn't trying to figure out what the next social evolutionary religious theory should be. Well, maybe there's only one true God that the National Geographic thought he came up with. Abraham wasn't looking to make progress in human religion. God spoke to Abram. And God simply called an undeserving man to himself. And we've got to be brief. We've got to be fast this morning. So just listen to me here. If you're not a follower of Christ, if you're not a Christian, just understand this. You never ascend to God. 
you will never ascend to God. This is what got the Babylonians and all of mankind in trouble in the last chapter. You will never ascend to God. You can never know enough, do enough, be good enough, create enough programs to meet the needs of other people. You can never do enough things to ascend to God. God will always call you and come to you. All of God's redemptive work is always all of grace. And so here's the second point. God's grace has no stereotype. God's grace has no type. Abram did not come from a godly home. Abram's dad, if you were to go back and read a little bit at the end of chapter 11, you would find that Abram's dad worshipped pagan gods. In fact, Abram's dad worshipped a pantheon of gods, most likely with the sun being the chief god. This is the home that Abram grew up in, and most likely this is the very same thing that Abram did. Abram had no Bible. He had no spiritual church family. He had no church. He had no seminary training. He had no library of good Christian books. He didn't have 15 different copies of the Bible on hand. In fact, the man that wrote the first five books of the Bible, Moses, won't be born for another 400 some years. Abram was in a land that worshipped false gods. And Abram did as well. All he had was the clear word and the strange God. That's all he had. Many of you come from backgrounds very similar to Abram's. You're in a position very similar to Abram's. You don't come from a Christian home. You didn't grow up reading the Bible. You didn't grow up hearing the Bible explained, unpacked, and applied to your life. You've amassed for yourself an absolute laundry list of indiscretions that you try to do the best you can to forget about or make amends for. Listen, God's grace, all of God's redemptive work is of grace. And God's grace has no time. You don't have to become something before God's grace touches your life. God's grace has no type. And so I want to say this as well, because we've got to be fair. Many of you were raised in a Christian home. Many of you were raised with the Bible around, the Bible taught, the Bible explained, the Bible applied. Praise God for that story. But here's this. Your doctrinal orthodoxy no matter how much Bible you know, some of you have made Bible knowledge a hobby and theological knowledge a hobby. If you busted out the old Bible sword drills, you would beat me hands down. Praise God for your testimony, but know this, your doctrinal orthodoxy and your theological knowledge cannot save you. Your doctrinal orthodoxy, your theological knowledge does not equate to godliness. They're not the same thing. We need right doctrine. I am a stickler for right doctrine. We need right doctrine. And in fact, I actually pray for and long for the day when we come up with an effective strategy that will allow us to use the gifted teachers that we have in this church to teach more classes and have more opportunities to teach right doctrine and Bible knowledge and Bible literacy in this church. I, I love it. I'm not saying you don't need right doctrine, but doctrine is not a test of genuine Christian faith. Bible knowledge is not a test of genuine Christian faith. Have all the right answers, read all the books, do all the right things, quote the most obscure Puritan theologians, and at the same time, you can be spiritually dead. Right doctrine is not a measure of true godliness. God dispensing grace upon you or I, just like Abraham, is not dependent on us first having a certain level of theological knowledge or accuracy. Now, and I'll be honest with you, I tend to forget that sometimes. Sometimes when I hear the testimonies and the stories of what God has done in people's lives, I want to hear him say it a certain way. 
I, I want them to say it in a way that I feel like they understand exactly what happened to them in a way I need them to understand it. And in that, I'm saying that God's grace really hasn't been poured out on your heart and transformed your life because you can't say things the way I want you to say them. And that's horrible. Because your ability to use the right words in the right language is no test of the genuineness of your faith. God's grace has no stereotype. No matter what background you came from, whether you worship the Son or you memorize the Bible, God's grace has no stereotype. All of His redemptive work is from His grace. And His grace has no type. Third thing, big one. God's grace is never meant to terminate on you. See this in the promises that God gave Abraham. Let me read it for you again. And let's just look at this together. This is, if you just stop at the end of this one, I think it'll be all right. But God's grace is never meant to terminate on you. Look at verse 2. This is what God says to Abraham. First he says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And then he says, I'll make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Did you hear the, the repeats in there? I will make you. I will bless you. I will make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. Purpose clause. I'm going to make you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. So that. Here's why. Hey, here's what all that's going to happen in your life. And the promise of your descendants as well. So that you will be a blessing. Keep reading. I will bless those who curse you. Who's talking? Who's talking now? God. God says this. I will bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Again, purpose clause. Some of your Bibles don't translate this accurately, but it's a purpose clause. So that by all peoples on earth, by you, all peoples on earth will be blessed. Multiple promises, two purpose clauses. So that all peoples on earth, so that all peoples of every nation will be blessed. God promises right here to Abraham the very thing we learned about in chapter 11 for the people on earth that were gathered together in Babylon, making a name for themselves were after. They were after a great name, they were after a land, and they were after a family. And God promises to hear Abraham to make him a people, to give him a place. And those blessings all come to him by God's grace for a particular purpose. The blessing of God on Abraham and on his descendants was never intended by God to terminate on Abraham and his descendants. All of the blessing and the promises of God we read about here in chapter 12 that we're going to see unpacked throughout the rest of the Bible. We're going to see explained even more clearly in the rest of Genesis. But all of these promises and all of these blessings that God gives to Abraham right here are instruments of God's mission and purpose. They're never meant to terminate on Abraham and his family alone. William Dumbrell, a great theologian, he said that these verses right here are a theological blueprint for the redemptive history of the whole world. You don't trust William Dumbrell, this isn't John Stott. John Stott said that it may truly be said, without any exaggeration, that not only the rest of the Old Testament, but the whole of the New Testament is nothing but an outworking of these promises of God. These are perhaps the most unifying verses in the entire Bible. The whole of God's purpose is encapsulated here. The promises of God that he made to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants from here are meant for the sake of fulfilling God's mission. 
That's why God gave these promises here. These are not entitlements that Abraham and his family are to have. These are promises that God is making. Blessings that God is going to bestow, not so that Abraham can just be happy, but so that through him, all the nations on earth will be blessed. The grace of God is never, ever, ever, from the beginning to the present, meant to terminate on you. Never meant to terminate on you. God has purpose. And as His grace is poured out on your life, and your life is transformed by His grace, your life will then be a living demonstration and dispenser of His grace to others. His grace poured out on you. His mercy poured out on you. His transforming spirit at work in you is never meant to terminate on you. The blessings of God and the promises of God made here and worked out in all scriptures and we'll see the whole story are always instruments of God's mission and God's purpose. Not entitlements that God's people from Abraham or the church in the New Testament are meant to just expect and to allow a cul-de-sac and pull up in their life. And meant to be instruments of God's purpose and mission. Even, to say this way, even in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 12, unifying verses in the entire Bible, blueprint of all of redemptive history, even here in Genesis chapter 12, the first three verses, we see the entire Bible, the entire story, is very gospel story. The Apostle Paul, we're going to jump to the New Testament real quick. You know, I'm turning, I'll read it for you. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, listen to what he said about this. He says, The scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. That's our man. Verse 12. Paul just said that God, knowing ahead of time what he was going to do, how his purpose and how his plan, how his redemption is going to work out to the Gentiles, so that everybody from the tribe, tongue, and nation on earth would be blessed. He preached the gospel to Abraham. Here's the gospel. Ready for the gospel? In you shall all the nations be blessed. Genesis chapter 12, first three verses of the gospel beforehand. God preached the gospel all the way back to Abraham. What could be more gospel? What could be more good news than against the backdrop of Genesis chapter 3, verse 11, and the unraveling of all that God had put in place in creation, and all the treason and rebellion of humanity? What could be more good news, more gospel, than the news that the one true, all-sufficient, great, gracious, glorious, good God has made a way and has committed himself to bless all of his people around the entire earth? God's grace is never meant to terminate on you. God's promises and blessings are not for your entitlement, but for his purpose and for his mission. His entire redemptive work is all of grace. His grace knows no type. His grace is never meant to terminate on you in your life. Ready? Next one? I'm going to move through. Oh my goodness, we're not talking about goodness. God's grace can and often is uncomfortable. Again, you've got to read the Bible like a human to kind of catch this understanding. Have you ever thought about how hard it would be for Abraham to actually leave his family and leave his land? Uh, have you ever really studied Abraham? Have you ever learned much about him or about where he came from? And I don't know what you think about the peoples who lived in his time. But historically, archaeologists and historians tell us Abram came from a city that had running water, 
had irrigation, had libraries. Hey, if we were to read all the story of Abraham together this morning, you'd see that Abraham was a very wealthy man. Hundreds of trained fighting men. Loads of herds and animals and cattle. In fact, historians, not even biblical scholars, will say that Abraham is the equivalent of a modern-day sheep. And this strange God comes to him with a clear word and says, get up and go. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless you so that everybody on the earth will be blessed through you. But you got to get up and you got to go. you got to leave everything that you know. Everything that has made you who you are. Everything you trusted in to make you who you are. To identify yourself by. To make a name and a reputation for yourself. you got to let go of it all. you got to leave it and you got to go to a place and I'll show you. I'm not going to tell you where it is. You just have to go. 75 years old, fully rooted, fully settled, fully successful in his life. You've got to leave the city. Leave the city and all that it has and all that it means and all the walls that are around to protect you. And take yourself and your family, you've got to head to the wilderness. You've got to head to the desert and you're going to live in a tent. And you're going to wander. And you've got to trust him. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what that must feel like? I mean, every single one of us is desperate to know what the future holds for our life. Every one of us is so desperate to not only know what the future holds, but to try to secure it that we squeeze our dreams and our hopes in the hands of things that can never fulfill, never satisfy, and are utterly not trustworthy. We trust our bodies while ignoring their absolutely fatal unreliability. We trust our future in the hands of relationships, never minding and ignoring the failure of the relationships between men and women, humanity. We trust our future and our hopes and our dreams in the hands of our jobs or our economies, never mind the instability that comes when people want to say everything they want to say. And we trust our future and our purpose and our dreams and the things that are so not trustworthy that it doesn't take long before we begin to wonder what in the world can I actually trust in? That what in the world can I actually trust in for my future? I mean, how can you tell if you're placing your future in the hands of something that's absolutely untrustworthy? Just ask yourself these questions. I'll, I'll read it real quick. Just ask yourself these questions. How can you tell if you're trusting something untrustworthy with your future? How do you feel when you sense yourself losing control? How fearful do you feel when your plans seem wrecked? How disappointed do you feel when you're not getting exactly what you expected? How dejected do you feel when it seems like you'll never quite be just good enough? In whom are you trusting with your hope for this life and the life to come? Abram had to cut loose of everything that he knew, everything that made him who he was in the place where he was, and follow the voice of one. A strange God to him. Here's the thing. You and I, we have to follow that same voice. Do you know what's so amazing about that voice? You don't have to worry. You don't have to worry. Because God is great, you don't have to worry about being in control of everything. Because He is glorious, you don't have to live in fear. Fear of the future, fear of the present, or fear of other people. Because God is good, you don't have to look anywhere else other than Him for 
full and complete satisfaction and joy in this life or in the one to come. And because God is gracious, you don't have to live another second of your life trying to prove yourself to Him or to anybody else. Life is a journey for us, just like it was for Abraham. It's a journey of trust. And everyone is trusting someone or something for that future. And you ask yourself, who, who, in whom or in what are you placing your trust? Sometimes God's grace can be uncomfortable. God's grace will always call us to make a break of something. For Abraham, it's kind of obvious. Get up, leave this, go over here. For us, it may not be that obvious, but God's grace always entitles a break. It always calls for a break. We always have to leave the patterns of thinking, the patterns of religion, the patterns of idolatry, the patterns of worship that we had previous to His grace pouring out into our lives. We always have to leave something. And God's grace will always, in His call, make it uncomfortable. It will always be uncomfortable. So all of His redemptive work, it's always. His grace and redemption has no type. All of God's grace poured out in that work and He's never meant to terminate on you. But God's grace when it comes to you, oftentimes it can be uncomfortable. Next thing, and we're going to wrap up with the last two. I'm going to get so many more. My goodness. You're going to get the heiress of Abraham and Patriarchs next week. I'm sorry. I wish we could go through it all too. God's grace does not mean does not mean just let go and let go. God's grace drives obedience. God came to Abraham. Abram, at this point, initiated his grace, his call on Abram, made promises and pronounced blessings upon Abram. Abram still had to leave. He still had to go. If Abram had acted like everyone at Babel and just tried to park it right where they were, it's the end of the story. If Abram still had to respond, he still had to go. And here's what I want you to catch. We don't have time to totally unpack it this morning, but here's what I want you to catch. It would be an absolutely dire mistake to think that God looked down and recognized Abram as someone that would just be obedient, and therefore God's recognition of that and Abram's understanding of obedience made him merit or made him worthy of God's grace coming to him. Uh, obedience never merits God's grace. Obedience is never a means of earning God's grace. Obedience is simply the natural reflex or the natural response when your heart has tasted grace. The grace of God always drives obedience. Obedience to God's clear word, just like Abram had received over and against the way Adam and Eve responded to God's clear word. Obedience to God's clear word in his life or in your life or in my life is always the natural way of responding to the grace of God. That's just the natural way of living. It's not unusual. It's not obscure. It's not relegated just to the super holy people that you have in your mind. Obedience, when you tasted God's grace, His unmerited grace, and those no time, is at work in your life, transforming you in the image and likeness of His Son, natural reflex of that grace in your life on His Grace always drives obedience. Just one more thing with this for you to tuck in your hat and take with you. You never need all the information in that. You never need all the information just to obey. 
Abram responded to the simple naked work of God. He just believed the God of the promises that he made. One commentator said it this way. He said, we see in the life of Abram that God's people always live on and respond to promises, never explanations. God said, leave. Go. Where? I'll show you. Never need all the information to obey the word of God. You live on the promises of God and the God of promises. Not an all right explanation to it. That was free. So Abraham left. He left. And one thing Abraham's known for is his faith. And many of us talk about or sing songs, we grew up in church, sing songs about the faith of Abraham, and he should be known for his faith. Here's one thing you got to know about. It wasn't the side of Abraham's faith in him great. It wasn't as though the life of Abraham, you see this guy with this great, massive faith. It's not the size of Abraham's faith that made him great. It's the object of his faith. That's right. It's not the size of his The size of the faith doesn't matter. The object of the faith is all different world. That's why Jesus said you can have faith the size of mothers. It's never the size of your faith that matters. It's always the object of your faith. And seven times in these verses, God says, I'm going to do something. I want you to leave, I want you to go, here's what I'm going to do. Seven times, God says, I will. Just trust me, and I'll do it. Have your faith like Abraham. He is a model of faith. The New Testament holds him up as that. He is a model of faith. And we can take an entire week just to look through all the ways the New Testament talks about the faith of Abraham. So, yes, he's right to be seen as a model of faith. But it's not the size of Abraham's faith that we're to model. We're to pay particular attention to the object of Abraham's That's what it means to have great faith. So if you want to model Abraham's faith, ask yourself, can you trust God like this? Can you say that you're all in, your chips are pushed all the way across the table? He is good, he is great, he is glorious, he is gracious. I am all in. I can trust him. I mean, just think about the fallen people you trust with your life. The dude making your hamburgers to drive for you. You don't see anything like that. And I've worked at restaurants. I thought used to own a restaurant. I know what goes on in the back of restaurants. <laughs> you trust yourself to them. You're the guy that fixes your car. Hey, great God, he's human. You trust your life with him. No worries. Can you trust God? All in. Is he who he says he is? Having faith like Abraham is not about having size. Are the object of your faith. Now, if we had time, and we don't have time to go through it, you can see how God's grace absolutely redirects, reforms, and transforms your worship. You see it in verse 5 through verse 7 when Abraham leaves, comes to the land of Canaan, and passed through Canaan to the place of Shechem, the oak of Morah. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, You offspring will give this land. So what did Abraham do? He built an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. He made the 400-mile trip to Canaan, and he let God lead him to a place that's a central location of all pagan worship in Canaan. He took him to the Tree of Morah, which historically is the center of all Canaanite pagan worship. This is where God took his man. He took him here. He said, look around. I'm going to give you this land. And in response, Abram, who grew up worshiping his son, whose theological knowledge is probably not much different at this point. He hadn't studied the Bible on that 400 trip. Hadn't read books of theology. He went around. 
He knew God to be who he revealed himself to be, and that was enough to trust him. And here he is at an altar of pagan worship. What does he do? He builds an altar to God. He builds a place of worship for the one true God. You see it again in verse 8 when he leaves again. He travels off to the east of Bethel. He pitched his tent. And Bethel on the west and I on the east, he built an altar to the Lord. And he called upon the name of the Lord. And when he gets to the land that God had promised him, he doesn't set up a spider man and take it. He doesn't wage battle with the people in the land so he can conquer them and take the land that's his. He established true worship of God. God's grace will always change the object of your worship. It will always transform the object of your worship. Before God showed up and His grace was poured out, He was worshiping His Son. Now God takes Him to the heart of darkness and idolatry and sets up a place of worship to God. It will always change the object of your worship. And God's grace will always, always transform your wilderness. This is one of the greatest things about this story. God's grace will always transform you into a witness. I'll tell you, all the years that I've read this story, all the years I've heard this preached, and all the things that I've done and been around this story, I've never understood this. And it took a Jewish commentator I was reading this week to actually make this clear to me, and I've never seen it, and I absolutely love it. So I don't care what time it is, I'm going to tell you, God's grace always makes you a witness. The Jewish commentator, Kasuta, he wrote the word we translate acquired in verse 5, where it said that Abraham took Lot and all the people, all the men that he had acquired while he was in Haran. is actually an improper translation for a Hebrew word, and we should translate it made. Abraham took all the men that he had made while he was in Haran. He didn't acquire servants, he made converts. This Jewish commentator says that Abraham was the first evangelist that we see in the Bible. The true God appeared to him. The true God spoke to him. The true God revealed himself to him. Abraham responded to the true God. And what did he do? He had to tell everybody else around him what he had seen and heard. He made converts while he was in Haran. He also says, same Jewish commentator, that when we get to verse 8, when he traveled on, a better translation is when it says that Abraham set up an altar and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. That's what it should say. Instead of calling upon the name of the Lord, he says we should translate it, he proclaimed the name of the Lord. He got to the middle of pagan worship. He set up an altar to God. And from there, he and his family and all the converts he had made while he was in Haram before he left proclaimed the name of the Lord. Preached, proclaimed, testified that the grace of God had been revealed in him. God's grace, and it transforms your heart. When you taste it for what it is, it will always make you a witness. That's a natural reflex. That's what God had already said to Abraham. I'm going to bless you. So it shall be a blessing. It doesn't terminate on you. It always transforms you into a dispensary of that same grace. When you taste it for what it is and you know it for what it is, when you recognize who you were apart from it, the natural reflex is to be a witness. It always makes you a witness. It, God's grace is the sum total of all of His redemptive work. His grace doesn't know a type. You don't have to be anything in particular before His grace comes to you. It doesn't know a type. God's grace will always, always, always work in you and work through you. It's never meant to terminate on you alone. But as it does, it will absolutely transform the objects of your worship. You are always worshiping something. But God's grace will transform the objects of your worship. And as God's grace continues to work on you, it works through you. It makes you a witness to His grace. And see this just solely in the life of your life. But to go forward in the story, you're going to go forward in the story starting next week. For God to really use Abram, a 
Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and patriarchs to bless the nations, for God to really use them to accomplish his purposes, he's going to have to continue to work on them if he's going to work through them. It'd be wrong to tell the story of Abraham and not mention he wasn't a perfect man. When we preach Abraham, we read Abraham, we talk about Abraham, the Testament talks about Abraham so much, we can think he's a perfect man. In fact, when Paul deals with the Jews in Romans chapter 4, the Jews in Paul's time, in Jesus' time, thought Abraham was the greatest man that ever walked the earth. He was the greatest man that ever walked the face of the earth. Father Abraham. And Paul says, even Father Abraham needed Jesus. Even Father Abraham needed to be justified by God's grace. He wasn't a perfect man. And what you learn in the story is that God's grace, not only is, does it not have a type, but not only does it change your worship, and not only does it make you a witness, God's grace is big enough, it's strong enough for all of your doubts. Abram listened to God, he believed God, he obeyed God, and he still struggled. He still struggled with doubts about how God would actually accomplish what he said. And it should help you that Abraham tasted and enjoyed and embraced the grace of God and still had doubts about it. Not only is his grace strong enough for your doubts, his grace is greater than all your weaknesses, all your sins. You see, just in a short reading of the story, twice Abraham in a foreign land he offered up his wife as his sister to protect himself. He offered up his wife for her dignity. Lord preserves on that. We find that even his doubts, his doubts about how God was going to accomplish all that he said, he, he agreed to a plan where he would take his wife's servant into his bedroom. He would try to conceive a son through her. You see, even Abraham had doubts. God's grace is strong enough for your doubts, it's strong enough for your sins. God's grace doesn't have a time. God's grace never is meant to turn me from. God's grace always changes the object of your worship and makes you a witness as it does for any you can work for you. It's big enough for all your doubts. It's greater than all your sins. We should have time on that. But all of God's work, all of God's gracious, all of God's redemptive work is a grace. And in the end, just like it was to Abraham, God's grace is always an invitation. It's an indictment on your sin. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to transformation and the purpose of mission and life of God. It always demands a response. And just like Abraham, just every single one of us have to decide, is God who he says he is? Is he good? Is he great? Is he gracious? Is he glorious? Try to put my life in his hands and my all of it. And pray for us this morning. God, thank you for your word. I thank you for the wisdom uh, of your plan uh, to not only accomplish redemption and salvation for one man of his family, but through him and now through your church, the salvation and redemption of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Uh, Lord, our time is brief. Uh, the words and the, your word and the words that I spoke of today. And I ask, Lord, that you would keep on your spirit, but only you can do you cause your work to do work in our hearts for us to see the grandeur of your grace and for us to taste the goodness of your grace in our lives. We ask that you, you would see how it changes us, how, it's, how you like us, and what it calls us to in this life here and there. We ask this love for your glory. Amen.